welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. I'm really excited and really honored today to have one of the greatest female athletes in Canadian history on the show. She's competed internationally in rugby, bobsleigh, and cycling, and is a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Heather Moyes is joining us today. In this episode, Heather's going to talk all about her journey as an athlete, from not even thinking the Olympics was a possibility, to standing on the top of the podium, not once, but twice. She's going to dive into mindset, how you can seize your potential, the importance of authenticity, how to deal with energy suckers in your life, what excuses truly reveal and of course how shifting your perspective can allow you to really own your story her fantastic new book redefining realistic is all about human potential and about helping you achieve the goals that are important to you whether they're in sport life or business so as always check out my layups the simple actionable tips as well as performance tips for more in-depth application at drbubs.com forward slash podcast and this is a terrific show so hope you enjoy it I'm joined today by Heather Moyce, a three-time Olympian and two-time Olympic gold medalist. Heather has been described as Canada's best-ever all-round female athlete, making Canadian history on home soil at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, winning Canada's first-ever gold medal. Heather has also represented Canada in international competition in track cycling and on the national senior women's rugby team in 22 international rugby games and the 2013 Rugby Sevens World Cup in Moscow, Russia. Heather was inducted into the World Rugby Hall of Fame, the only Canadian female and only the second Canadian to receive that honor, joining the likes of Johnny Wilkinson and Nelson Mandela. Heather is also an accomplished speaker who inspires people all around the world with the depth of her experiences and enlightens audiences with her lessons and philosophies on success and life. Heather, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, listen, for folks who are not from Canada, perhaps from America or the UK or parts of the world who may not be as familiar with your success, can you tell listeners a little bit more about how you got into sport and your career? Oh, how I got into sport. Well, I played sports my whole life, but it was always just for fun. Um, I never really took sports that seriously because I grew up in such a small place. Um, I'm from Prince Edward Island, so the smallest province in Canada. And there weren't really people around me training for the Olympics or training, um, you know, to compete on the international stage. So for me, Olympians were just TV people, not everyday normal people like I considered myself to be. So I just played for fun and grew up in an academic family. And so, you know, pursued a a career and a master's degree in occupational therapy and just always considered sports to be kind of extracurricular to what I was going to do to earn a living. So it really didn't happen. I mean, even playing three varsity sports at university, um, I still never, I mean, besides just doing kind of what the team did together, I never really took sports seriously and really started even lifting weights or training until I was 27 when I was, um, yeah, when I was suddenly faced with this challenge of seeing if I could qualify for the national bobsled team and potentially represent Canada at that upcoming Olympics, which was in less than five months. So at that moment, it was I realized I was motivated by challenges more than 
well, at the time more than anything else. And so I, I kind of embraced that challenge to see if I could learn a new sport and learn to do it well and learn to do it well enough uh, to qualify and kind of meet that goal. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, the odds of winning an Olympic gold medal are about one in six hundred and sixty-two thousand, <laughs> and you've got two of them. So, you know, what was it like in twenty ten at the Vancouver Olympics when you were preparing for that final run at the gold medal? Uh, preparing for that final run, I think it was really just trying to keep things in perspective for both myself and my teammate. It was, um, it was kind of um, there's. I mean, we're on home soil in front of our own people and. Uh, we're sitting in first going into that last run and it's it's you know these are moments that we see all the time with with people like with athletes choking or even in the corporate world you know people choking before this big event because they've kind of inflated the the importance of that uh, for the for the moment so you know I just kind of turned to my teammate uh, Kaylee and just said you know we can we can leave right now <clears throat> She looked at me as though I was crazy and she's like, what are you talking about? Like we have one run left. And I said, no, but we can leave. Like we don't have to do it. We don't have to prove anything. We don't have to go out there at all. If this is too much, we can just leave, but we don't want to. Like we changed, I, I shifted it probably even more so in my own brain than, than in hers, but just, it was a matter of reminding ourselves that it, that it was our choice to be putting ourselves in that position um, and that we were doing it because we actually wanted to, not because, you know, we were being forced to do it or, you know, all this pressure and things riding on this, this last run. But as soon as you kind of remind yourself that it, that it's your choice and you're doing it actually because you really want to, you know, I don't have to set a push start record. I want to set a push start record. We don't have to set a track record or win a gold medal. We want, we, we actually want to. So as soon as you kind of shift that in your mind, it, it takes a lot of the pressure away. And it's incredible because it's such a simple thing, yet it's a, such a profound thing in, in elite sport, professional sport, and as you mentioned, in all areas of life of people getting so focused on outcome that it almost paralyzes that capacity to really perform at their best. And, you know, your emphasis yeah. on this idea of possibilities, you know, um, really insightful. Was there certain things that you did to get yourself into that state of mind or was that something you've been working on? Uh, no, it's funny because people always ask me if I've ever had a sports psych and and I haven't, but I think my... I really think that my family uh, provided that kind of groundedness and and ability to look at things from a different perspective ever since we were growing up. So it was never, it was kind of, um, it was even when you're when you're a kid. I mean, kids change. I mean, for me, I changed kind of what I wanted to be when I grew up daily, for if sure. not hourly. For sure. um, and so every hour, you know, now I'm going to be a veterinarian, and the next minute I'm going to be a photographer, and then an hour later I'm going to be an author and then an hour later you know everything changes um but anytime i would say what i wanted to be when i grew up i don't know i must have just come naturally to my parents but they just kind of said oh that's really interesting what's the first thing that you'll do when you get there or what it, what are the what do you think it would take to get there like do you have to be strong do you have to be fast do you have to do you have to know math do you have to like they kind of even from a young age it was almost yes okay there's your goal but breaking that down into knowing what you need to do to get there. And it was never a, it was like they were still excited for whatever idea I proposed to them owning my own zoo or being a tiger in the zoo, like whatever it was. Um, it was, it was just kind of their way to support me, but change the way that I looked at things. And, and I think that um, the fact that they really didn't 
uh, care so much that whether I played sports or not, like to them, it was, it was irrelevant to, to, um, I guess, happiness and to fulfillment. And so I never felt pressure from them. So I never really felt like my, my own personal, uh, self value or self esteem was, was wrapped up in a, in a final outcome. So I think it just, I don't know, it just, that, that ability to, to shift your perspective. I've just noticed over the years that the way we look at things, it can be a very, very simple shift in even the words we use that, that can impact the way we see a situation and perceive a situation and which, which in turn kind of changes your approach and changes your outlook and often changes the outcome. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible insights and, you know, your fantastic new book, which is coming out, redefining realistic, um, is inspired by this mission you have to help people achieve their goals. And yes. you, you sort of mentioned it here, but you kick off your book with a terrific quote, which is, you know, when pursuing any dream or goal, it's not about the guarantees, it's about the possibilities. And it seems mm. like you've already explained the fact that your upbringing had a big, uh, you know, a major influence on the fact that you could you see things this way. Yeah, well, it's just been really, I mean, I mean, when I, I guess just over the last in writing this book, I realized my slogan for the last number of years, ever since I kind of got in, involved in this elite high performance sport, um, was that there there are no guarantees. But until it's over, the possibility still exists. So it's you don't if you're pursuing something where the goal does have a guarantee, it's just probably not very magical. You know, you're probably not stretching yourself as far and not testing your limits and not really, you know, seeing what you're truly capable of. So, you know, when you have, when you are trying to push yourself and pursue an outcome where you're like, you know what, I have no idea. You know what, is my goal realistic? I, you know what, I have no idea, but I sure as hell want to see how close I can get. So it's, it's just kind of embracing that challenge of really pushing yourself to see what you're capable of, which is, um, you know, it was the same thing when I was trying out for that, you know, trying to qualify for those first Olympic games in my, you know, the very first time. And then it was the, the idea of, do I want fourth place to be my story for the rest of my life? And so, you know, the challenge of changing that, well, I'm going to go back, I'm putting everything on the line again to see, can I, can we get on the podium? Can I, can I change my story from fourth to you know, somehow be a medalist for Canada. And then after that, going into Sochi, you know, I had hip surgery nine months before I had to qualify for that Olympic team. And so it, you know, I, the, the, the feeling of being written off by people and kind of no longer being a consideration uh, is, it's a, it's an interesting feeling. And it's not, I mean, I'm sure it's not the first time I've felt that I'm sure. And it's probably won't be the last, um, but it's, I think if you have that mindset where you're excited about the pursuit, um, and excited to test yourself to see how close you can get, then I think, well, I truly believe that most of the time we, we support, we'll surprise ourselves because we're, we've taken off those, um, kind of preconceived limitations by just using it as an experiment, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to see, I'm going to see if this is possible. And, and, uh, I really truly believe that, that most people will surprise themselves and, and see that they're capable of way more. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible because in 2014, like you mentioned, you're defending your Olympic medal, um, but you had this major injury, potential career ending injury. A lot of people would have said, you know, if you call it quits, you had a great career. 
Um, mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, you know, you kept going, you overcome these roadblocks. And of course, you guys were behind going into the final day at Sochi as well, which in, in yes. bobsleigh is not an easy thing. I mean, you guys were being written off. I mean, if, if your book, we were behind by a lot. Sports <laughs> sports writers were writing up that, you know, the, the Americans had won the gold medal. Can you walk people through how that last day and how you literally, I mean, this is a thousand to one shot that you guys came back and won gold. Yeah, it was so. So a bobsled race is on a World Cup circuit, are basically two heats, like the accumulation of the times from two heats on one day. But at um, any kind of event at at the World Championships or Olympic Games, it's actually an accumulation of of the times of four different heats, two heats on on two consecutive days, um, and then they add all those times up, and basically the fastest accumulated time wins. So after that first day, so only the first two runs, we were actually losing by 23 hundredths of a second. Now, doesn't sound like much, does it? No, it doesn't sound like much well, for us, uh, because but, you use the word hundredths. But yeah. I mean, after four heats in my very first Olympics in Torino in 2006, um, after those four heats down the track, we actually missed standing on the podium by only five hundredths of a second. And that accumulated distance is 5.7 kilometers. I think 3.54 miles for, for any non-Canadian or British yeah, people out there. Sure. Nice. Um, but I mean, after that distance for five hundredths of a second, like it's like, that's how that's it's pretty, like mean, that's the time it takes for a single beat of a hummingbird's wing. We're talking like minuscule, like non-visible to like invisible to the naked eye kind of di- differences. Um, so 23 hundredths is actually an eternity in the sport of bobsledding. So, that night it was um yeah it was just a matter of trying to keep our focus and remind ourselves that it's that it is in fact based on four heats not just two um and that it's results are based on consistency and who's consistently good who's not going to crumble under the pressure and we said that there are it's we have two heats not just one so we just needed to focus on one and do our own do our own thing. And I mean, the next day, as soon as we arrived, there were people approaching the USA one team. And now that drive, the driver for you, I mean, she's, she's beautiful. She's amazing. She's very sweet. Um, and she's very lovely, but people were already going up and congratulating her and giving her hugs. And, and so I guess we just kind of took that as an advantage, you know, if, if she's already, whether she or just people around her, are kind of insinuating that she's won um that's added pressure for her and it's just you know the hope that potentially she'll make some mistakes and if we can just close the gap a little bit on the first run then you know maybe she'll panic and we just have to focus on that first run so it was kind of breaking things down a little bit but it was also when you look at it you're down by a lot but they they created that distance over two heats. So we still had two heats. So technically, it's possible to make a difference of 23 hundredths of a second with two heats. So it's, um, again, it's just putting things back into perspective and just knowing that it's not over till it's over. And mistakes happen. And so we just, we went for it. And we ended up cutting that gap in half after the first run. So we were only down by about 11 hundredths after the first run. And then we ended up winning the whole thing by a tenth. So we made up a huge difference in the last run. I mean, it's incredible. There's that, that mindset and sort of turning a negative into a positive. And of course, that was a 
tremendously historic occasion, right? That was only, was it the second time that someone had ever, ever defended an Olympic gold medal in Canada? Yes. Yeah, I think it never never happened before um, those games before, but I think there was one event earlier that games. So yeah, but it would be the second or third Canadians ever that's, to successfully defend their gold medal. Yeah, that's a phenomenal accomplishment. And of course, you know, I find it interesting in your book as well. You know, you're obviously tremendously successful with your partner and duo in the bobsleigh, uh, Kaylee Humphreys. And now, how did you both meet? Because that's not exactly the story that most people would assume of how you both became uh, teammates. No, <laughs> no. Well, Kaylee and I, so when I came to the program in the fall of 2005, um, the, the only reason I really came to the program was because I'd been asked to do testing. And at first I had said, no, I'm not interested at all. And then I finally got convinced to just do the testing camp. So I did the testing camp thinking, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just do the testing. It's not a big deal. Um, but I ended up breaking one of their testing records. And so that was when it suddenly turned into this challenge, like how, oh, wow, okay, can I, can I really, maybe I can really do this. And so I was placed with, um, with a driver, uh, Helen Upperton, who had another brakeman. And based on the results, you know, kind of at, at testing at every kind of race leading up to those Olympics, we had to kind of test against each other and prove ourselves and everything. And basically, um, I took that brakeman spot in the back of um, in the back of that sled for the for the Torino Olympics, and that brakeman just happened to be Kaylee Humphreys, your future so, partner in all these Olympics. My medals. future teammate, <laughs> yeah, my future teammate yeah. for for Vancouver and Sochi. So, <clears throat> so that being said, there was um, you know there were a couple of years there. I mean, I went back to to finish my master's degree the year late the year a year later, but. I mean, there were a couple of years where I would still kind of show up and, and try and support the team at different events. And, and you know, she didn't have a lot of words for me then. Um, but in, I don't know, December 2008, I guess. Um, yeah, the 2008-2009 season. So the season before the Vancouver Olympic season. Um, <clears throat> we were... Kaylee had turned after that moment where someone had taken her spot for the Olympics in Torino she kind of made a vow to herself that she wouldn't let that happen again. So she, that's what actually prompted her to turn it into a driver. And so now as a pilot, a bobsleigh pilot, um, she was on tour and that December we were all on tour going from one venue to another driving in these vans. And I mean, these road trips can be, I mean, some of them are just three hours, but some of them are 10 or 11 hours. And so we do everything to pass the time, and at the, we go through everything. And so at this point, though, I, a friend had given me this book. Um, it's like the a book of questions or something. So there are all these questions, like if you could have dinner with any person dead or alive, you know, who would it be? Or any three people dead or alive, who would it be? Or if you could, you know, all these random kind of questions. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, uh, I'm just reading these out loud, and people are kind of blurting out answers. But then one of the one of these questions that I read out loud was, you know, if you could get back at someone who had wronged you in the past and my voice kind of just trailed off a little bit. And I was like, Oh, people were just, the other girls in the van were just looking at me with like this death stare. Like why, why read such an awkward question? <laughs> and, um, yeah. And so I just kind of made a joke about it and I said, Oh, I'm probably up there in your top 10 somewhere. And I Kaylee and, there was a big awkward silence and then all of a sudden she just said um 
She goes, no, actually, I've come to realize that uh, that you were just doing your job and that really that those decisions had nothing to do with you. So I had not, I hadn't even realized that I'd been kind of carrying this weight on my shoulders, but I just kind of felt this weight lift. And probably about a month later in January, uh, one of the coaches approached me and asked if I would push Kaylee in a race that week, like later that week. And I said, sure. And so we ended up doing two races that week because one was a rescheduled race, um, two back-to-back races. And we ended up, well, we ended up crashing in, <laughs> in one of them. Um, but we ended up doing really, really well. And our chemistry on the ice pushing um, was kind of undeniable. And I felt like it was a way to kind of give back, give back to her something that I, even though it wasn't my fault, something that I had been indirectly you know, responsible for taking from her, like that experience of, of competing at the games in Torino. So anyway, that was, that was about a year before the Vancouver Olympics. And so, um, that's kind of how we got together as teammates for those two Olympic games. That's incredible. I mean, it's amazing for people to be able to get over, um, past experiences and change mindset and everything else to get into that position is, is tremendous. And of course, in your book, you talk about, you know, potential is genetic. And of course, things like speed and power, however, you know, those are talents and skills that you really have to develop from that potential. And it takes a lot of work, you know, so for yourself, what kind of training or training mentors really helped you along the way to develop your athletic potential? Uh, I would say that the, the, my, a trainer, Matt Nickel, um, is a trainer uh, based out of Toronto and he, he was my trainer probably I would say since 2008 maybe. Um, and I was connected with him partly to deal with some injuries, you know, that, that were kind of niggling and, and that sort of thing. So probably the fall of 2008, um, I connected with him and worked with him only for a couple of months before that season and then connected with him again, uh, the following year to, basically trained that whole summer leading up to the to the olympic season and his his approach to training um i have a huge respect for it it's he was always telling me you know you're a you're a square peg you don't fit in a round hole so it's you can't just take a a blanket training program that could be that would be offered to most people um and it because it won't necessarily work for you or or it's it might work to a point, but it's not going to get everything out of you that you need. Um, it was all, also different things like power cleaning, like power lifting is, is really big in the sport of bobsledding. So bobsledders train like power lifters and they also train like sprinters, like track sprinters. So they kind of double up, double up in their training. But because I had never lifted weights before 27, I had really at 27 just, I had, I just stuck with kind of the dumbbell barbell, like not really any of the major power lifts. And so, I mean, I was really excited this summer of 2009 because I had a full summer where I was just going to focus. I wasn't going to play rugby. I was just going to focus on training for the Olympic season. And I was, you know, approached him and I said, okay, I'm ready to do power cleans now. Like you can teach me how to do them. And he says, I'm not going to teach you how to do power cleans. And I was just like, but yeah, Matt, but Matt, it's one of the main lifts for bobsledding. Yeah, but we don't need to do that. And I said, yes, but it's also, they have a point system when they test towards the end of the summer. So, um, and the points then kind of say who you're going to be pushing within the testing and then the testing, then it knows whose sled you're going to be in for the tour. And I said, so it's really, really important. And he said, 
when you want, when you come and tell me that you want to go to the Olympics for powerlifting, I'll teach you how to do a power clean. Until then, we'll do exercises that will get you powerful and explosive so that you can be a good bobsledder. And so Terrific. he shifted. Yeah, it was amazing. He shifted the way I looked at it. He said, if you don't do a power clean, but you push really well in the ice house for testing and you push really well at the top of the track, are they not going to take you because you don't know how to do a power clean? And so he just made me think about it in a whole different way. Um, and it, yeah, it was really, it was really valuable information for me. And he said, I, every, like every person is slightly different. I mean, I never trained the same amount of volume as the other bobsledders. Um, and he was saying my, my strength lies in my, you know, nervous system. And he said, sometimes less is more. It was also just little sound bites that he used to say, like, um, one training session is not going to make your Olympic games, but one training session could break your Olympic games. So it's, if you're feeling really drained and, and, and flat and, and things are niggling and not quite right. Um, then he said pushing through some of that could sometimes can sometimes make things just make things worse. So you don't have to muscle through absolutely everything because sometimes it's, it's not the right thing to do. So anyway, he was, it was, it was more, more than just the training programs. It was, um, just his ability to, to, to shift perspective which is now i mean i speak to groups all over the world and and a lot of it is about perspective and the way you, you look at things in order to get out of you what you're truly capable of getting yeah it's uh, fantastic stuff and matt nichols was so great for us as well at canada basketball and of course you know in your book you, you reveal some of these really candid and surprising moments which is things like you just mentioned where never having lifted weights before training for the bobsleigh and being so successful mm -hmm. i mean you know what was that like for you to kind of shift gears in the book you mentioned kind of your uh, moment with your sister there uh, having to, to oh. coax you into it. I mean, some of those things are really uh, insightful. Yeah, getting into weights was, um, it, well, I mean, it was difficult on a number of levels. One, I was in an environment where these people had been lifting weights for years um, and where the trainer at the time, I don't think fully understood or I, I guess really didn't, believe, we'll throw my quote out there, believe in the possibilities. He didn't really believe in the possibilities that I would actually be pushing at the Olympics. Um, so there wasn't a lot of time spent on teaching me how to do, how to lift weights or how to, how to do things properly. And so it, I kind of felt a little bit like I was on my own. Um, but that being said, I was really averse to lifting weights, uh, because I had just a mental block against it. Um, it was a, it, it was when I was growing up, it wasn't the time like it is now where CrossFit and, you know, athletic bodies in, in women is, I mean, it's much different now than when I was growing up. And so for me, having grown up naturally, just very muscular, um, I mean, I used to be asked all the time, you know, how, where did I go to the gym or how many hours did I spend in the gym? Or I know football guys at university telling me that they wish they had my legs. And, you know, you start to, when you hear it a lot, it starts becoming a thing in, you know, in your brain and you, sure. you latch on to these things and it's, uh, it becomes a, like a self image, um, becomes a self image issue. And you don't even, it's not even that the comments were negative. It's just that there were so many of them that it obviously meant that 
you know, obviously I was different. Obviously there was something freakish about how I looked or obviously, you know, it just, these things kind of swirl around in my brain. For sure. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, everyone has these, these little comments that were said even when they were younger or when they were, you know, whatever that stick with them forever. So, um, for me, I had gotten away with playing three varsity sports at university, um, and being, you know, pretty successful in those without ever having lifted weights. That's incredible. And yeah, yes. And people are like, well, do you wish you had lifted weights? And, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, well, I wonder how well I could have done. But it's interesting that, that, um, I was, I mean, I was extremely successful in, in rugby, um, soccer. I, I'm pretty sure it was just because I was fast. Um, and when it came to track and field, I was always kind of that, one, two, like one, two. And there was this girl, uh, from the university of Toronto, um, who she's lovely, but she would, you know, there were these races where she'd always just kind of get me, just get me. And for whatever reason, the idea of lifting weights to make me better and potentially be able to beat her, it didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind to me. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't, it was almost like I had given myself parameters within which to become successful. So I want to see how successful I can be like naturally. It's so funny now naturally has a whole different connotation, but you know, naturally without lifting weights, like just working on technique and just kind of doing exercises like, you know, whatever, but without lifting weights, I just wanted to see how successful I could be. And I, and there are just, a lot of it comes down to what I was willing to do to my body and the body image issues that kind of had swirled around for, for many years just because of, of, of the muscles that I already had. So it's interesting. It's really, really interesting in hindsight. And of course, you know, you mentioned your sister obviously having one of those um, moments, yeah. this realization of her saying, Hey, get on with it. Just uh, if this can help so you. So right? my, Yes, that phone call when I was when I realized that I was going to do bobsledding or I was trying to decide. I said, "But if I go on tour with them, then I'll be on tour with them. They'll be around all, all the time." And she said, "End." And I said, "But then then they'll know that I don't lift weights." And she's like, "I or I said, I won't be able to get away with it. I won't be able to get away with not lifting weights." And she said, "Well, just lift weights then." And she, the comment that came out of her mouth was just, quote, unquote, get over yourself. It's five months till the Olympics. It's less than five months till the Olympics. You don't want to get to the very end and just miss out on making the team or just miss out on, you know, qualifying or whatever and look back and wonder if, if only who you had lifted weights if it could have made a difference, you don't want to have that, like, what if hanging over your head for the rest of your life? If you just barely miss making that team, will you regret not lifting weights for the rest of your life? And so that kind of triggered this no regrets, you know, no regrets, no, no excuses philosophy. And I kind of carried that with me through all my training for the next number of years. That's tremendous. And of course, you know, perspective is huge in sport and in life. And, you know, in your book, you mentioned your hometown and, and PEI and, and this come from away metaphor that you use about perspective. Can you share a bit of that with listeners? Yeah, well, come from away is a term that's that's used a lot in PEI, and I realize that it's not 
it's not just in PEI. I mean, now there's a musical written um, and it's kind of based in Newfoundland, but um, it's not just for Islanders. It's also kind of small towns and, and they have this, um, they call people who are not from there, like not originally born there are, they say that they come from away. So in like they could be and it's shortened to abbreviation, a CFA. So technically, technically my mom, for example, she's lived there for, over 40 years, but technically she's a CFA because um, she was not born on the island. So it's um, it's an interesting term that now is, uh, it's, I, I, I've never really thought about it having negative connotation. Uh, I think that some people now feel that it can be taken in different ways, which is why I had to write about it very, very kind of cautiously and carefully. But what I wanted to bring out was that coming from a way means coming with a different perspective, different life experiences and different perspectives. And that in and of itself is value. It's, it's, it's value added. It's, it's providing a different way of, of seeing things and, and potentially solutions to issues that, that might not have been discovered otherwise. So it's, um, yeah, I talk a lot about that partly because of the roots of where that term comes from. Um, or how, where it's used, I should say, you know, coming from PEI. And it's, uh, yeah, I hope people really resonate and see the value in in coming from away, especially now when we're dealing with, um, you know, a, a lot of new people coming into our country, in whatever country, like just with assistance and, and needing to help people by providing them new places to live. It's, um, I really truly think that they're bringing a, a, a new perspective and a, and I think the more perspectives that we can have on things, you may still stick with your own perspective, but I think by having multiple, uh, multiple perspectives from which to choose, the more, you know, that the more informed you can be and the better you, everything is overall. Absolutely. That's definitely something that, you know, even in the medical field, dealing with medical doctors or naturopathic doctors or athletic therapists or trainers, everyone has their own perspective on how they come at things. But I've always been amazed that if you can hang around with different groups, if we think of this as a, on a professional side, you know, you, you be, do begin to see things from their own reality. And that's a really powerful thing. It helps to really yeah. uh, come up with a lot of solutions, right? And of course, Absolutely. you know, when we look at people's, if we kind of think of, you know, the, the folks in terms of their day-to-day job you know recent studies show that about a quarter of people are sort of mentally checked out of their current job about 60 percent aren't so satisfied with their current roles and career paths and of course this this idea of you know that you mentioned in your book which is you know what's the problem with reality and of course i'm using air quotes here when it comes to fulfilling or chasing mm. your dreams so what is that that's holding people back what do I think that's holding people back? Well, when we talk about this idea of, of you know, you have to, you know, it's a reality yeah. check or people need to do mm-hmm. things that are realistic. You know, you mentioned that kind of being a roadblock to really fulfilling or chasing dreams. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of, like, I break that down in my book into kind of two different parts. And the first one is is the kind of the physical, tangible, visible um, obstacles that we that we see things like, or that we kind of claim things like finances and not enough time, not enough energy, um, not enough resources, um, geography, like all of these things that you can kind of, you know, point your finger to. But there are so many examples in the world of people who don't have any of those and who've achieved significant, um, significant levels of success. And so it's 
starts, it should be making people wonder, well, what is it? And those external obstacles are really what we use as excuses. The true obstacles and what's really stopping us are the internal obstacles, the things that that convert those external, those excuses into into our obstacles and, and, and roadblocks. And so the things on the inside would be like fears, uh, assumptions, and self-limiting beliefs. So the whatever the self-limiting beliefs is, you know, created from when it's all based on experience, all of it, all three of them are based on experiences. And so experience, when you say, oh, they have so much experience, sometimes it's not always good because it all depends on what kind of experience they've had. And if their experience was that failure um, equals rejection, then they aren't going to be as open-minded to take any risks or to take chances because of the fear of rejection. Um, it's not always the, the fear of failure is kind of like, okay, well, well, why? So most of it comes down to rejection or to not being included and not being accepted and, um, and that sort of thing. So, um, that's where a lot of the fear stems from. Um, and assumptions, oftentimes we just assume too much. We assume that, that there's someone who's more qualified. We assume that our, that our experiences or our um, qualifications are, are not enough. Um, we assume that uh, that person who you know has more qualifications is going to get the job, so you might as well not even go out for it uh, without realizing that maybe they have chosen something else. Um, a lot of, we just assume, we assume a lot, um, a lot more than we even realize we are. Um, and then, yeah, and those self-limiting beliefs, I think we just need to expand, um, and, and embrace the challenge of, of trying to push those boundaries and to truly test ourselves to see what we're capable of. Because like I mentioned earlier, we are all in positions to really surprise ourselves when we don't add these kind of self-imposed limitations on, on what we're capable of. And often those limitations are based on, I mentioned our experiences, but also just our environments. I mean, you start wondering, for example, uh, being a doctor, um, a lot of doctors are follow, pursue that route because they have family members who are doctors. And so they just, just by being in a member of that family, they know that being a doctor is possible. So is it necessarily because they're children of physicians, which means that they're that much smarter? Or is it the fact that they just know that it's possible, so it's a route that they can follow? Um, it's the same as being an Olympian, for example. Like, I didn't even pursue it because, well, I didn't really cross my mind. Like, Olympians were TV people. It never occurred to me that they're just normal, everyday people like I consider myself to be. But yet I have my nieces and nephews who are talking about, you know, going to the Olympics as though it's, you know, you know, on par with being a teacher, which I'm glad that I've instilled that that point of view. You know, every everything we pursue, every kind of uh, industry, job in any kind of industry is going to take work and and discipline and learning specific skills for those particular routes and yes we are all have do have genetic potential that suits us better for certain industries than others but that doesn't explain why there are perfectly genetically gifted human beings who never make it to those you know the top echelons of of their you know sport 
it's or perfectly brilliant CEO, like people who could be CEOs in the corner. Like they're just, we just sell ourselves. We stop ourselves. We stop ourselves from pursuing things based on what we perceive to be possible before we even test it. Yeah. So very well said and something that definitely for us at Canada basketball, we're experiencing now with this idea. We know when I was growing up, we had one or two players in the NBA and now these players are seeing so many of their peers in the NBA. And so they all believe it's possible and they're all right. starting to accomplish it. So it's amazing. As you mentioned, that idea of that self-loading belief now is just removed and we're seeing a lot of potential there. Um, and of course, you know, one of the major themes of your book is this idea of human potential. Uh, I recently had uh, Dr. Andy Galpin on the show. He's the Director of Human Performance at Cal State Fullerton and the author of Great. Unplugged. And of course, you also touch on this theme of disconnect to reconnect in your book. So mm -hmm. why is it so important for athletes or you know anyone for that matter to really not get so swallowed up in the connectivity, um, et cetera? Um, I think that we just, it's easy to lose track. Um, it's easy to lose track of what our, what we really want. I think in, in this day and age, we are bombarded with messages from everywhere and from everyone um, imposing uh, and unintentionally, but still nonetheless imposing um, what they, imposing their definitions of success. And so a lot of times uh, people will find themselves pursuing something and just be so caught up in the pursuit they not even realize until they achieve their goal that it's not actually where they wanted to be. So they end up being in a job that they don't really enjoy, um, that they, and sometimes despise and, and yet feel like they're stuck in there because they've just spent so many years and so much money training, educate, getting educated, doing all of those things to achieve this level. And then they feel stuck in it. Um, whereas I feel that it's really important to disconnect and I mean, I don't necessarily mean like holding yourself up in the woods without speaking to anybody, but I do mean like just time, time away from that, the noise, the, the, the messages, the, the everything that the constant society, yeah. yeah, the constant, constant, you know, influx of, of opinions and, and that sort of thing. And I, and I just think it's, where you reevaluate your one, your values. A lot of I, I don't think a lot of people really know what their values are and and ranking them in priority. And because your values, when you truly figure out what your values are, then it makes your decision making so much easier and so much more clear, um, and helps you prioritize the things that are really important to you. Um, and that I think needs to happen on a regular basis it just because one sometimes your values change sometimes things take you know suddenly you have a young family so that suddenly takes precedence over a higher like over spending hours and hours and hours in the office and earning a bigger salary so it's and that's for some people but some people again feel stuck and and that sort of thing so i just think that 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 being able to disconnect means one, it just helps you physically recharge your body anyway and your mind, but it also gives you time to reconnect with yourself and what's truly, truly important to you. Yeah, so very well said again. And then of course you mentioned, you know, authenticity in the book and of course you talk about, you know, owning your own story, which you sort of touched on here, but you know, for people listening in who are, you know, 
ready to start to overcome those excuses for not, um, you know, going after those uh, goals that they've really sought out for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Is there an initial tip or, or, or a thought that you can give folks um, beyond the, you know, the terrific uh, outline you give in your book? Yeah, well, the whole owning your owning your story section. I mean, I talk about choices and consequences, and you know that all that stuff. Also, the impact that we can have that our choices have on on people around us, whether we realize it or not. Um, but I think when you realize all of that, and reading the the section kind of on excuses and and that sort of thing, when you're when you're attacking a goal and you're trying not to make excuses. For me, owning your story means means really owning your choices and knowing the and owning the consequences of those choices. And so, if you don't want, if you're not going to the gym, don't say you don't have time. Say you're prioritizing something else, because everybody has the same amount of time. So it's a matter of prioritizing something else so maybe you're not going because you're prioritizing getting your taxes done um over going well great that's fine but just that is your priority and that's fine if you just want to stay home and watch a movie instead of going to the gym then that's fine i'm not judging you as long as you own that and know what the consequences are based on whatever goal you have for yourself so it's not it's not a matter of of trying to dodge you know get out of doing something or or whatever it's just owning it you know what i need a recovery day i'm going to be much better in the long run if i actually just don't go to the gym today and i recover but you have to know whether that decision is is in alignment with your goals and if it's not in alignment with your goal then acknowledging what the consequences might potentially be and still being okay with those with those decisions, and that's it. And it's whether it's whether you're pursuing a goal in business, or whether it's in fitness or health, or you know, it, it could be in anything. But as long as you're kind of owning your choices and your consequences, and not making excuses, then then it's good. Then you just own your own your stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's such a powerful statement that you make. You know, this excuses reveal priorities is just really, really terrific. Um, and of course, phenomenal insights. The book is fantastic, chock full of um, really actionable, actionable tips for folks. And of course, Heather, I want to respect your time here today. So last question for you. We're going to shift gears to a personal note. Um, okay. A little bit about yourself, uh, your morning routine. Are you a coffee person? Is it exercise or work in the morning? Can you give us a little glimpse into your morning routine? Yes, well, that's that's a tough one because my whole routine is now shifted now that I'm suddenly after three and a half years of not training at all, I'm back to training for bobsledding. So um, I'm not a coffee girl at all. Uh, I've never really been a tea or coffee person. So usually when I get up, I'm a definitely a make your bed as soon as you get out of bed in the morning person. Nice, get that one thing done for the day for sure, right? I ha- I have to, and part of it is because I travel so much, and so I'm pretty much living out of hotel rooms a lot. And even though I know that someone's going to come and make it in a little while or whatever, I still feel the need. I feel like it's I have a little more. Maybe it's a little more control. It's a little more. It, it looks tidier. It looks neater. It's not as. I don't feel as disheveled living out of a suitcase. So that's probably just my own mental state. But I get that done. That's the first thing. Uh, first thing I get done and then yeah it depends my days aren't exactly routine 
So now that I'm back training, um, it depends on whether I'm, I'm training in the morning. So if I am, I will have breakfast and then, uh, get my stuff ready to go out the door and, and get to the gym. And that's pretty much it. If I'm not going to the gym, then it's usually still breakfast and then tackling email or catching up on finances or whatever, I've, whatever's fallen by the wayside while I was having a, a long training day. Um, but yeah, that there's, there's not a lot of routine. Terrific. Well, I appreciate the insights. And of course, your <laughs> book is, <laughs> I mean, so many years of routine as well, right? Um, your book is phenomenal. Uh, when is it coming out? Where can people pick it up? And where can people stay connected with you on social media? Yeah, well, I'd love for people to stay connected on social media. I'm on both Instagram and uh, and Twitter. Uh, I also have a Facebook page. So so like that or follow that. And I'm trying to keep people posted right now because of this big comeback um, back into the bobsledding world, and which is probably the most epic challenge I've, I will ever be facing in my life. Um, so that's you know, that's all happening now. So that'll be fun on social media. And then as for my book, uh, redefining realistic right now, it's available for pre-order on my website. So just heathermoist.com, um, or on Amazon. Uh, it's already listed on amazon.com and right now they're just getting the bugs out so that it'll be listed on amazon.ca by next week. And hopefully it'll be ready to ship out, uh, by middle of December. So I'm really excited. Fantastic. That's super exciting. And of course, we're going to include all those links uh, in a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Heather, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, thanks for everyone else for tuning in. If you guys have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show or our regular listener, please subscribe and share with friends and colleagues. Thanks again and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.